Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 439 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Jeremy Treglone speaks with Anne Morgan about choosing biographical subjects, the fallibility of memory, trying to tell real-life stories fairly, and the experience of being a critic as well as an author. Jeremy Treglone is author of numerous critically acclaimed non-fiction books, including biographies of Roald Dahl, V.S. Pritchett and Henry Green. A former editor of the Times Literary Supplement, he has chaired the judges of the Booker Prize and the Arvin Foundation, and was a professor at Warwick University. He began by telling me what drew him to writing biography. When I began as a university teacher, indeed when I was a student, biography was absolutely not part of what people learnt about about writers. Um, it was the period when the French were saying that the writer was dead. And it was perfectly clear to me that the writer wasn't dead. And partly because when I was in my teens, I used to go to literary festivals and see real writers, partly because I was friends with people who were going to become writers and have indeed made good careers as writers. The, the actual subjects, uh, I've tended to go for people who haven't been written about at all or not much. There have only been unreliable biographies of Rochester. Uh, in the case of Roald Dahl, he'd only just died, and the only accounts of his life were more or less made up by him and steered by him. And when I know that the biography of Henry Green Pritchard and, and John Hersey, they, they, they were either the first or the, are the only ones. So it's been to do with a fascination with the writing life and wanting to bring to a public audience um, somebody I admire but who hasn't perhaps had their uh, due Mm. Yeah, I mean, that is the common thread, isn't it? That they are all writers. Yes. And I wondered, because something that's so impressive in, in your biographies is the scope of research and context you bring. Mm, I mean, you. there's a huge, it's extraordinary. John Hersey, for example, a life that roved across the planet, some childhood time in China, all kinds of contexts that you need to understand in order to bring the reality of that life to readers. And, and also things like, the culture of New England a hundred years ago, and yeah. things like that. Reading them, I was struck by something that I felt when I was researching Reading the World, um, yeah. uh, which was that you could actually include everything written ever in it. How do, how do you know when to stop? How do you know when you've got enough? Well, exactly. I mean, uh, 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 I mean, one of the one part of that question is how much background you need to give. What can you depend on the reader knowing and. Of course, you, you just have to work that out for yourself. I mean, I more or less base it on my grown-up children and my grandchildren. And I can't really answer all the questions that my grandchildren would have. But I try to be clear enough for somebody with my kids' range of reference. But you do have to contextualise and do a bit of world history if, you, if you're dealing with a world writer like Hersey. The question of how much to put in in terms of the actual life of the person, is also fascinating, I think. I mean, I'm in awe of Hermione Lee's Life of Tom Stoppard, for example, which is a real doorstop of a book. 
and it tells you everything you could conceivably want to know about everything Stoppard ever wrote, what research he did for it, how long it took him to write, um, what stages it went through in performance and rehearsal and performance. And I, I think she's done it with tremendous finesse and immense learning. I really admire it, but at the same time I find it a hard read. Uh, and uh, as you can tell from from my stuff, I, 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 I don't go in for biographies that are longer than 300 pages, partly because that's not the kind of book... I don't want books to read books that much longer. <laughs> I don't mean novels, but, but biographies. But also because I don't think I've got the stamina. I mean, it takes a hell of a long time to write a 300-page book, mm. let alone, you know, a thousand. Yes, absolutely. Maybe your editorial eye as well, sort of playing a part there, because... That, that, I haven't thought of that, but certainly in starting out as a reviewer, you get the message very early on from editors that you you know you've got to keep it short mm. and crack on and get your main points in early kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so that may have influenced me, but mm. I think it's basically that I'm a bit lazy. Would you would you call yourself a literary biographer? Because in in biographies I've seen of you. You're usually described as a biographer, and I wondered, but you do in your books bring in some of the the writing of the writer, and and you explore with Roald Dahl, for example, you explore how his experiences in World War Two are diffused, refracted, or distorted sometimes in the short fiction he wrote at the time. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm interested in writers because of their writing. Mm. Of course, Dahl had an unusually. Uh, glamorous and and uh, event-filled life, and was a controversial human being. So that all that figured quite largely in my writing about him. But essentially, in his case, I mean, I had read those books to my kids. I mean, the BFG in particular, they absolutely loved. And I'm always fascinated in in how aspects of the personality and the experience of a writer are refracted, as you say, in their work. It's not an easy... You know, I, you, you, it's important not to make it's simplistic problem, Yes, problematic, assumptions. isn't it? Yeah, it is problematic. Yeah, yeah. But, but at the same time, it's quite pointless to pretend that mm. there's no connection. Mm. Martin Amos once said in a, in a conversation, I, public conversation I had with him at Warwick, I accept that what I have written is a full account of myself. And, I mean, that's a, a faintly gnomic way of putting it, but it, it basically saying, you know, it's not that I, I am an autobiographer, although now he has written more personally about himself, mm. but that somehow or other every aspect of him, sooner or later, comes out in his work. Mm. I and mean, one of the things that's really fascinating about your books is they are each in their different ways critiques of different kinds of storytelling, I think. So Hershey, Percy, for example, um, it, you, you write a lot about war reporting and also storytelling during war. There's a, there's a lovely quote. You talk about anti-war literature and you say um, it, it makes its arguments against war by, in part, focusing on individual experience and where that is factual. It is intrinsically unjust to what other individuals have gone through. And I wondered whether that's true of biography as well, picking out one life and putting it under the microscope. Does that automatically imbalance? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. Thank you. And, and, and a difficult one to answer. I mean, I've always been very interested in war, as I find most of my generation born immediately after the Second World War are. It's just that it was a presence. Um, that, but at the same time, it was absent, and so it was mysterious. That's a different question. But the, the, the question of fairness, I've always been fascinated by the, the books and the writers of books who try to include as many people as conceivably possible. I mean, Tolstoy in War and Peace has a pretty large cast. A book that is, to some extent, modelled on that one by Vasily Grossman, Life and Fate, mm. uh, again, about the Second World War, has such a huge cast that uh, it's very, very, very difficult to keep in mind who everybody is. Indeed, there's a sort of cast list at the... At the uh, I can't remember whether it's the front or the back of the book. And I used to get my students to think about the question, how many individuals can a human being keep in mind? Mm. Social media has, in a way, given a number because of how many friends you've got or whatever uh, on a website. But how many people can you actually seriously sympathise with and care about? It it is a a question of the scope of the imagination. Uh, Religious people will say, you know, I I keep you in my prayers. And if the person in question is a priest, um, you know that that person has got literally thousands of people that they notionally have to pray for. And you think, well, what what does it mean exactly? Uh, It's a sort of philosophical but also cognitive question. And there isn't an answer in terms of the choice of subject, except that, as with charitable work, in the end you have to say to yourself, well, this may not be enough, but it's something, at least it's something. If you are teaching for the Arvon Foundation, which I've been involved with recently, you may help a person or a couple of people to change their lives. That is a a well-known, documented, factual aspect of what Arvon does. But it's only one person, and in a sense you didn't choose them. They happened to be on the course you taught. But with biography you do choose. With biography you do choose. And in that case, as I've said, I think what I've been trying to do is to pick out people I think deserve more attention than they've had. Mm. I wrote a book which was not biographical, although it has a few life stories in it, uh, about the culture of Spain yes. in after the... Franco's uh, Crypt. That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. And in a chapter about uh, writers, is it about writers? I gave thumbnail sketches of, of a whole lot of books that dealt with the Spanish Civil War. A hostile reviewer in The Guardian said that I had just, uh, a historian, said that I'd simply given my opinion of these books and that, that I hadn't backed it up with, as it were, any socio historical data about readership or anything like that. Well, I felt like saying, well, in your review, you're just giving your opinion of my book. Um, But, uh, I mean, she held this to be an aspect of my having been a literary journalist. I thought it was a bit unfair because we do read accounts of books when we read reviews, 
because we're interested in what other people think about them. Yeah. And I find that reviews often tell you more about the reviewer than about the book. Because that, you're often... I know what you mean. Yeah, the, the response. And, and sometimes, as I said, depending on the publication and the editorial line, there uh, can often be a display of knowledge and expertise yeah. that takes up the, the bulk as a review. And actually, the impression of the book is that the book is sort of really just a way into that person I, I, grandstanding about it. Well, you, you, yeah, uh, you've had this experience, that, uh, I think we all have, that mm. quite often the expertise of the reviewer <laughs> is largely derived from their reading of your book. And it's very irritating when you feel <laughs> that an essay is written, um, which uh, depends on what, what the reviewer has read in your book. Yeah, I mean, the, the question of subjectivity is a tricky one, isn't it? Because I, I was struck by something um, that you wrote about, in, in the Hersey. Um, you were talking about an account of he gives of Father Walter, this missionary, um, yes. doing work. You, you really quite closely read a section of his account, and you say, in the course of a few sentences, we've gone from a sense that we're reaching... Uh, that we're reading a reliable narrative to a sharp reminder of its double subjectivity and that Father Walter is telling a story that's then being reflected yeah. through Percy's mind. But of course, we're reading it with triple subjectivity because yours is <laughs> laid over the top. Yes, absolutely. And how do you how, how do you weigh that? Because you're, one of the things that's really enjoyable and in your writing is you, you're very clear, you, you have a very sort of uh, direct style and you... you don't shy away from expressing definitive statements about what someone was thinking and feeling, um, but of course, to a certain extent, yes. that is your construction. How, how do you? How did you? How do you weigh yeah, that? Yeah, well, well, I do try to remind myself uh, and readers that that there are those elements, but at the same time, you you have to press on, and and you you have a story to tell, and you you, you can't with every sentence say you know if I'm correct about this, or if you can believe X. Mm-hmm. It, it is the, uh, the subjectivity in terms of, of, of memory, for example, is one of the things you come up against all the time in biography. People, I find m- more than once that people who at first said they didn't want to help for one reason or another, even because they couldn't remember enough about somebody, mm-hmm subsequently wanted to be in the story because perhaps friends of theirs said, I've just been talking to this person. They didn't want to be left out. They didn't want to be left out. And in some cases, you have to be careful because they want to be perhaps more important. They think themselves to be more important than I would judge them to have been. Mm. I co-taught at Warwick with Jonathan Bate, Mm. a module on life writing. Mm. And we would say to the students right at the beginning, we want you to do something halfway through the term in reading week, and you must start preparing it now. Think of a story that is told in your family. It's an event that looms large and that involves several people. Get in touch with all the people who were involved and say you want to talk to them about it. But because of the nature of this exercise, you don't want them to compare notes with the others and and then write about it come back uh, in the second half of the term with an account of that they all came back kind of somewhat alarmed or horrified by the fact that different people put themselves to the centre of the story or claimed they'd done something driven somebody to the hospital mm. um, helped them out of the ambulance into the ambulance whatever it was 
when actually other people said it was them, or, or you know, very, very mm. simple tricks of memory that produce very different accounts. So you, 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 you just have to be on guard about that. I mean, this is something that you highlight in uh, Roald Dahl's boy, that he misremembers the identity of the headmaster who delivered vicious, a particular That's vicious right. beating. That's right, yeah, yes. And yes. Um, throughout his life maintained that yes, it exactly. was, who it actually wasn't because he'd left the school <laughs> yes. the year before. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a real minefield, isn't it, this, yeah. um, this memory and the fallibility of memory in that way. And I was wondering about the responsibilities that go with that as yes. a biographer. Um, well, I, I have a quite simple uh, kind of opinion on this, which is that if a subject is sufficiently interesting, somebody else will come along and do another book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think about all the different accounts of John le Carre's life um, in, in journalism as well as in, in books and editions of letters and so on. So there is a process of, of correction that goes on, let alone in the case of Shakespeare, about whom we actually literally know not very much at all. Yes, but about second him. best bed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there is a kind of corrective process that goes on. Part of that, of course, is not only to do with the facts of somebody's life, but is to do with uh, importance or not. And... and what we've seen in the during my lifetime is a, is a huge amount of of investigation of women writers, writers from the former empire, that kind of thing. All of that very valuable, and asserting that there are a lot of people out there writing books, and always have been. Um, I mean, since writing became a, a practice, and there will always be scope for bringing somebody back into the spotlight, or just putting them into the spotlight for the first time. Mm. Now, you say that you know you look for subjects who deserve more attention and who you admire, but you also are very even-handed in your treatment of the people you write about. You don't shy away from uh, presenting their weaknesses, right. their, a more problematic side. I mean, Roald Dahl, you know, what, a, what an extraordinary character, um, admirable in so many ways, and yet reprehensible in many others, yeah. anti-Semitic, a bully, all kinds of a fantasist, making up all sorts of stories and, and you know, um, and as one of the, the people that you quote talking about him says, um, almost anything you say about him, the opposite could also be true. Yes, yeah, um, people, yeah. Yeah, so how, I mean, how do you get that balance? Because you, you don't want to just write, a, you know, a praise for someone, there's no, that's not much fun to read, is it? And probably not much fun to write, but how do you... Yes, I, I, well, I think it's part of um, being judicious and uh, uh, balance of probability uh, is a topic I was talking to my wife about yesterday. She's a philosopher uh, and there'd been a sort of discussion about what does the, the balance of probability mean in legal cases. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, in the end, it, we, we all have a sense of what it is and you get a jury together and they thrash it out. And it's the same with with opinions of... It's the same with gossip uh, mm. and uh, a literary opinion. Mm. I've never been very keen on scandalous gossip, although you, you, you can't avoid it in life. People like to talk about each other and sometimes there's a real relish in it. 
And particularly a life as scandalous as Roald Dahl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so much exactly. And in his case, I mean, I, uh, I, I felt the interest was partly that he had made up such a version of himself mm. almost as, as assiduously as he'd written stories. Mm. And that actually investigating the truth of what he said, um, or otherwise, was, 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 worth, was doing. worth doing. Yeah, I mean, that's the point you make in the, the preface, that um, you had some obstacles to face with that book, because yeah. there was reluctance and resistance on the part of the family, um, but you felt, you squared it with yourself by thinking, well, he courted this sort of attention in the way he presented Absolutely. his life, yeah. and yeah. Um, that he is a well-known figure and there's public interest in... It, but it was one of the things that, was, that were fascinating. Uh, I, mean, I was writing kind of more or less in tandem the book about Dahl, um, which had an early deadline, and the book about Henry Green, which I started around the same time, um, but which took longer. And Dahl came particularly from a sort of Hollywood kind of world because of his marriage to Patricia Neal. And in both cases, there were reasons for people to hesitate about whether they would talk to me or not. In the case of Dahl, all these Hollywood people and, and uh, you know, um, people in the, in the general world he came from would say, I can't talk to you because I know that Lissy, his second wife, doesn't want this book to be written. Mm. But where do you say you are? And mm. this is a particular case. I was in New York. And I said, well, I'm in New York. And the person I spoke to said, oh, for God's sake, come on over, have a cup of coffee anyway, you come all this way. And then, of course, he told me everything that he knew about Royal Tart. Henry Green came from the much more reticent world of the, the British upper classes. And in that case, uh, Diana Mosley, Diana Guinness, as, as she had been, said, we talked on the phone, and, and she said, I'd love to talk to you about Henry. I can't think of anybody I, w- I would like to talk about more. I loved him, I loved him. But really, I knew him so little. I knew him so little, I can't really help you. And that was the end of that conversation. Afterwards, somebody, a mutual friend, said, you know, Diana was saying to me, why didn't you go and talk to her? And I said, well, I actually asked her. She said she wouldn't talk to me. So part of all this is uh, in all the different questions of reliability and unreliability and of of accounts is, you know, where you get your material Mm. and uh, who will talk and who won't and whether they can be relied on. Mm. So you do have to be very cautious and uh, and make that part of the story, I think. I was fascinated to learn that you edited the letters of John Wilmot, um, Earl of Rochester. I did a dissertation on him at university. Really? I was really? fascinated by him, and I no doubt used your your edition during my <laughs> research for that. He strikes me as an absolutely ideal figure for your biographical attention. He's got exactly the sort of contradictions and, and sort of conundrums attached to yeah. his life. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, there are a number of unreliable biographies of him. Yeah. You're not tempted? I can't persuade you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting thought. I'm, I'm not sure that there's, we're any closer to being able to answer the questions that, that are raised in my little introduction to that book. And there's a huge amount of work, like yours, that's been done um, on the period. And it, to, to, I would need to make myself an expert in a period that I thought I knew a bit about when I was in my 20s, um, but haven't really thought about 
sense. But he is a very, very attractive figure, partly because he was such a gifted writer, such mm. an attractive personality, but also he was very naughty. Yes, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, for me, it was the... Um, oh, gosh, and the title's escaping my memory now, but After Death, Nothing Is and Nothing Death. Yes. I just I fell in love with that poem, yeah. and, and I sort of wanted to know the mind that had created, yes, exactly. created it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that was what fascinated me, and, and yeah, it was... I just think he's an extraordinary figure. And, and I've read a number of biographies of him that made me quite cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Now, a lot, a lot of critics struggle with writing books because they feel very hemmed in by knowing, sort of anticipating the baying hordes waiting. Yes, to. yes. How did you deal with that? Well, I think that I've been timid in that respect, in that there have been people I would like to have written about I've long had an ambition to write about Dryden, for example. Mm. And I've just been daunted by the thought of not only the amount of primary material one would have to read. Stevenson, Robert Louis Stevenson, is another case. I, I spent quite a lot of time working on Stevenson. I did a little selection of his essays. And I thought about doing a biography. And then I thought it's not just the huge amount of primary material, because everybody who ever met Stevenson you know, but kept everything that was uh, connected with him. Uh, he became such a sort of talismanic figure. But the vast amount of secondary material, one would have to read everything everybody else has written about him, and I, I simply couldn't face it. So a, a mixture of laziness and timidity, I think, has meant that I've tended to go for, you know, somebody who hasn't been written about much. Mm, mm. Um, and in the case of Rochester, hasn't written too much. That helps. No, too. well, yes, that does <laughs> cut down the research time, doesn't it? I suppose with Rochester as well, there's no kind of interviews to be done with contemporaries who can <laughs> tell you that. No, exactly. Uh, the background. Exactly. Well, I mean, that was one of the interesting things about finding myself writing about people who were alive in people's memories. Mm. I've never written about anybody, and I wouldn't want to, who's still alive. Mm. But uh, what I didn't bargain with having written about a, a long-ago historical period was that when I started to write about uh, recent people, 20th century people, there would be ferociously partisan and indeed ferociously loyal emotions that one had to deal with. And my first meeting with John Hersey's daughter, uh, who is also his literary executor, she's a psychotherapist in uh, Upper Manhattan. And... I said to her, perhaps rather rashly, of course, the difference between you and me is that you know more about somebody uh, than anybody else in their relatives, their family, possibly even than they know themselves. And then you don't tell anybody. Mm. I try to be somebody who knows more about the person than anybody else, and then I do tell everybody. Uh, she she uh, didn't exactly uh, find that funny because she was very very worried about mm, mm. this book in the end she was pleased with it but she wouldn't authorize it and there were things certainly that that, that uh, I realized I was going to have to be very cautious about and mm, and mm. Uh, and tactful about yeah yeah now, you've been writing biographies for well 25 years 30 years getting on for has the discipline changed over that time and where do you think it's going? I mean, we've had a lot of talk in the last decade particularly about truth, fake news, yeah. all this stuff. 
And these anxieties are starting to play out a lot in fiction. Yeah. Um, a lot of novelists now are writing stories from much as you that that exercise you described of getting yeah. different perspectives, no definitive, no one definitive. Can biography survive this? This honesty? yeah, I mean, of course, it's very interesting, and uh, and uh, there has been that very marked vogue for writing about the process mm. of doing the book. There's also been a tendency for biography to be a term used in relation to to a family or a group or just a period in somebody's life. Um, and now you get biographies of cities, biographies of uh, musical instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 so it is a capacious genre. And it's inevitable that climates of opinion and you know, the Weltanschauung will affect how a genre is used, that people have always wanted, though, to know about people. Mm. I mean, there have been lives of heroes, saints, from the beginning of, of, yeah. of, of, of written narratives. And, of, of course, now they can take very many different forms and, and you can do things uh, with IT in terms of actually giving people the the research materials Mm. so that they can do their own investigation. Mm. But I think there will always be people who who say, well, I I don't want the whole lot. I just want you to tell me the essence of of the life. So I, I, I don't think it's going to go away. And I think there are always going to be people who like to tell stories and there are always going to be people who like to hear them and read them. That was Jeremy Triglone in conversation with Anne Morgan. You can find out more about Jeremy on the Royal Literary Fund website. And that concludes episode 439, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 440, Royal Literary Fund writers discuss the mysterious mechanism by which stories, plays and poems are born taking in everything from the arrival of the idea and the slog of the drafting process to the joys of editing. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.